Sharan, I hope we have you on a much better line, brother. Yes, yes, you do, Aya. Thank you so much. Uh, so, so, Sharan, I was just giving some context to our listeners here of uh, the economic hardship that has given rise uh, to this particular, you know, series of protests uh, out uh, in Sri Lanka. Maybe just give us some of that background and context uh, for some of our South African listeners who might not be familiar with it. Yeah, so, uh, you know, the current crisis is, is really, um, it began as an economic crisis. It's kind of the culmination of uh, a lot of bad policies uh, that Sri Lanka has undertaken, essentially since independence, uh, you know, running a very um, a very wide trade deficit, uh, producing only uh, raw materials and low value added products like mm. a lot of uh, developing countries around the world. I think uh, listeners in, uh, you know, parts of Africa will probably identify with this story. So, then, you know, you have a crisis like the COVID-19 pandemic and then Sri Lanka was really dependent on tourism and mm. foreign remittances. So all of those inflows stopped, right? And at the same time, you had inflation, the oil prices went up. So the trade deficit widened. The government was not able to control the exchange rate, uh, which led to a massive devaluation last year. Uh, and, um, you know, eventually that uh, translated to massive inflation because uh, Sri Lanka is not uh, food sovereign. So... Um, you know, you have people relying on imported lentils, imported um, canned fish, imported wheat. Uh, and when the price of all those things shoot up, it really hurts um, a lot of the, the poor, the working classes, especially in urban areas who don't have access to agricultural land. Um, I think that's really the, the, the economic spark that um, got this whole thing rolling. Then on top of that is also, you know, the debt crisis. Mm. As, you, as your listeners might know, that Sri Lanka has uh, defaulted on its debt officially. And, and of course, I mean, I guess, as you mentioned, it's the structural questions. Uh, and often many of our listeners often say, you know, on this continent, and uh, which is very similar to what you've painted now for Sri Lanka, you know, we consume things we don't produce and we produce a lot of the things that, you know, in the main, while we might consume it, but are also for export markets and add to that services like tourism and so on, which um, due to the pandemic, uh, weren't able to bring in a lot of foreign exchange. Talk to me about, I guess, um, the debt crisis itself, the default uh, and I guess where relations ended with many of the multilateral institutions who were the creditors. Yeah, so that's that's an interesting story. I mean, um, you know, debt enters into the, the equation in Sri Lanka really in the 1950s and 60s and then in mm. a big way in the 1970s, right, with the oil shock. Um, I think, again, it's like, it's essentially the same stories for, for so many developing countries, especially plantation economies, which, you know, Sri Lanka was a plantation economy under British uh, colonial rule. Sure. Um, what essentially happened in the 2000s was that um, we climbed up to a sort of, um, I think it was middle income. And around that time, they started uh, issuing uh, sovereign bonds because they were no lo- longer eligible for uh, concessional loans, right? Because we were no longer a low income country. Um, and throughout that period, you had more and more borrowing from private lenders, mostly from the West. Um, so we're talking about, uh, you know, like BlackRock and, um, you know, just a lot of U.S. companies uh, and banks. Uh, what's interesting is during the same time, you have the Western media playing up this uh, so-called Chinese debt trap. But if you look at the figures now, only 10% of Sri Lanka's external debt is to China. Um of course, you could argue that, you know, there were certain infrastructure projects that might not have been, um, 
you know, well-advised, might have not have been the best investments or have not performed well. But uh, overall, it's really a structural issue. I think, um, you know, it is it is this trade deficit problem that uh, Sri Lanka has not been able to solve, which uh, essentially, you know, puts it into this uh, cycle of debt. And, you know, now we've come to a point where the debt uh, cannot be repaid. And... And I guess that in and of itself, all of the political economy issues that you raise have triggered a political crisis. Uh, Talk to me about, I guess, how the economic crisis became the political crisis and uh, what happened before we saw all of the uh, scenes that uh, certainly were played across the world over the last few days. Yes, that's interesting. I mean, um, the the current president, President Gotabaya Rajpaks, I think by now uh, those who follow South Asian politics are probably familiar with the, the Rajapaksa family. It's a very big political family in Sri Lanka. So uh, Gotabaya's brother, Mahindra Rajapaksa, was president from 2005 to 2015. Uh, it was during his time in power um, that, you know, um, the war, uh, Sri Lanka civil war ended. Um, and at the time, the president Gotabaya Rajapaksa was a defense secretary. So the... This family is, is is interesting, and again, there are some parallels, perhaps, with like political uh, families and certain political parties, even in uh, in Africa and parts of Latin America. Uh, you know, normally they're you know very nationalistic. Um, they try to forge allegiances with um, China and a bunch of other third world countries, but you know, you they were also very corrupt. I think that that's that's a fact. Um, that was uh, that was always a problem. Um, you, they weren't necessarily uh, socialistic or progressive, but at the same time, they weren't liberal as well. So you had this um, opposition coming from um, liberal quarters mm. of uh, Sri Lanka, particularly the urban sector. Uh, and then you also had opposition coming from the human rights sort of NGO um, nexus. And... Um, you know, this is this is sort of built up over the years, and there's a uh, this whole question of the Chinese debt trap of corruption. It's very much embedded, also um, with the narrative about the Rajpaksas. Uh, you know, this isn't to make any excuses for them and, and say that they're saints, but uh, there are basically these competing uh, class forces. The Rajpaksa family themselves they represent. Um, you know, they mobilize the peasantry largely in the south of the country, right? Agrarian areas, mm. uh, people involved in fisheries. Um, so you have that sort of uh, contradiction between the Rajpaksa family and some of the older urban elite political families and the, the main opposition parties now, um, which uh, traditionally represent that line of thinking. But of course, you know, the Rajpaksa, I think they lacked imagination um, and they lacked... Uh, the resolve to to sort of live up to the ret- the rhetoric of uh, nationalism and mm. and so on. It, it's you know it's in in some ways you could make some comparisons, perhaps even to the ANC in South Africa, mm. like mm. Uh, you know the how some of these ideas become so thoroughly corrupted, and then you you create room for a lot of um, liberal and mm. maybe uh, comprador pro colonial um, center right even yeah yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Mm. So so the protest we're seeing now is like very much a mix of competing interests. So you have, 
you have um, student activists, you have public sector unions, mm. but you also have the whole sort of, uh, you know, USAID, uh, George Soros, NGO mm. uh, nexus in there. You have the human rights activists. You have, um, you know, people who are very committed to a sort of a liberal economic agenda of uh, further liberalizing the economy, opening it up to imports, uh, privatizing what's left of the SOEs. Uh, those are all things on the agenda. So, but but so so how do yeah. you weave together a coherent enough um, coalition from all of these seemingly disparate groups that can at least constitute an interim government? Yeah, that's the uh, that's the problem. Um, there have been a lot of comparisons made with what's happening now to uh, the Arab Spring, right? And you know, as you know, I mean, a lot of the countries that experienced the Arab Spring. Uh, some of them, like Libya, were, were left worse off than when they started. So mm. uh, my concern exactly is, you know, what's going to happen to fill this power vacuum? As you've seen with any country that's defaulted with its Argentina or Greece, you have a very prolonged period of political instability and basically a revolving door because nobody can quite command a, a coalition of all the different classes and interest groups to, you know, stabilize the political scene. Um there are a couple of opposition parties vying for power now. So it would be the traditional um, center-right parties, mm. the, the, UN, the UNP and the SJB. There were, they were one party before, but now they're sort of split. Um, yeah. And then maybe I guess the, the other dynamic um, that uh, is certainly of interest to, to me here is how does this moment present a structural break? I mean, you spoke about the Rajapaksa, you know, cartel um, and the seeming dynasty politics. But at the level of the political economy, I mean, does it unleash the possibility of uh, some path to more value addition, more industrialization that can deal with the kind of existential questions that got the Sri Lankan economy and its political economy into this mess in the first place? Well, I recently read some of the demands by, um, you know, the, the protesters and some of the organizations that were involved in, um, you know, the, the um, storming of the presidential palace uh, and the presidential secretariat, rather. Um, and you don't see strong materialistic or uh, economic demands coming front and center. Um, what you have right now is a discourse that's dominated by anti-corruption, by like by the idea mm. of anti-corruption, right, and uh, by anti-nepotism. Sure, sure. Um, and there, there's a lot of legalistic procedural demands, you know, abolishing of the executive presidency mm. because that's seen as a, a concentration of power, uh, certain checks and balances, um, tweaks here and there with the legal system, the parliamentary system. So there's a lot of that sort of legalistic thing which, you know, has entered into the mainstream of um, political discourse uh, very much in the neoliberal era, right? Like this wasn't yes, the case yes. before the open economy, back when the unions were strong and the old left was strong. Mm. That was very much about wages. It was about industrialization, um, subsidies, things like that. Uh, unfortunately, there isn't as yet um, a strong debate on these things. And part of the problem is, as I mentioned before, is that the Rajpaksas themselves... Um, were sort of identified with that, right? They were they were identified with the center left and the policies of the center left. So their mismanagement and their failure has, by proxy, discredited all of those ideas about, 
you know, economic nationalism and self-sufficiency mm. in agriculture and industrialization, import substitution, all of those those ideas now, because of the economic crisis, have somewhat been discredited. And, and the limitations of, of that, I mean, I, li- I like your formulation where you say a lot of it is centered around corruption, a lot of it is centered around d- demands that are more procedural rather than they are substantive. Uh, from a political economy perspective and uh, in many ways not unique to Sri Lanka. I think you would find the same here in South Africa where people say, well, the biggest problem that we have is corruption. Um, And uh, what is the limitation of that kind of approach from your observation with where you're sitting now if we consider how disparate the groupings are? And I'm also interested, I guess, in your own assessment, what is the balance of power between these different groupings that, uh, you know, have seemingly laid siege uh, on uh, you know the palatial surroundings that we saw on many of the videos. Right. So to answer the first part of your question, right, what are the limitations of the the corruption discourse? Um, I think anyone would agree agree with me when I say there's corruption in every country. Right. The U.S. has corruption. Japan has corruption. Mm. The European Union has corruption. Uh, some of it is formalized corruption. You know, they have like proper institutionalized lobby groups and things like that. Um, they have disproportionate control over the international institutions, you know, WTO, IMF, and all of that. So you you can't point to a third world country like like Sri Lanka, South Africa, and say corruption is the main problem because mm. that's a common factor that's there everywhere, right? Um, so it has to be something else. There has to be some sort of long term structural issue, and it's some of the things I mentioned, right? It's the uh, you know the from the political economy side, it's a trade deficit. It's the the lack of self sufficiency in um, energy and in food, in particular, uh, lack of uh, industrial exports, and and all of those things. So, you know, in the in the last few years, you see a lot of extremely wild claims about how much money the Rajpaksas have, right? Which, again, I don't doubt that they're corrupt and that they have stolen a lot of money, but the claims are. Are completely ridiculous, right? Like if if someone had that kind that kind of money, like billions and billions of dollars, they wouldn't they would just retire from politics and go live in the Bahamas or something. Um, and so 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 there's this new there's this idea that uh, Sri Lanka's debt can just be paid off if we somehow find the money that this family stole, and that's just you know it's not realistic. It's not how the economy works, right? That there's a structural reason for the debt, and it's not it's not corruption. It's it's just the trade balance. Um, so that's the major limitation, I think, of the, the corruption discourse. It really distorts and I, I feel poisons the entire uh, discourse about the state of the political economy and about the structural issues. Um, and remind me what the second part of your question Balance of was. power between these seemingly disparate right. groupings, yeah. Yeah, balance of power. So um, this is an interesting one, right? Um so shortly before these protests started, you had uh, Victoria Newland uh, from the U.S. Uh, come here, and she was someone who was deeply involved with uh, the coup in Ukraine, uh, you know, the Maidan revolution or whatever. Um, and you, ha- I have seen uh, the the U.S. embassy and U.S. ambassador be quite active as well. And certainly, there are some of the the old, um, you know, Soros and USAID funded organizations that are on the ground trying to push um, their agendas, you know, the particular reforms that they want to the legal system, uh, to the economic system. Um, You know, I I can't help but 
think that if we're if we're serious about who has power in this world, it's it it is these interest groups, right? I mean, mm. in, I would argue imperialism is still a thing, um, and the, the United States is the best at it. Their their soft power, their ability to um, infiltrate uh, civil society across the third world is is unparalleled. Unparalleled. I mean, uh, China is a complete rookie at this. I've seen Chinese diplomacy in Sri Lanka and. You know, they, they are uh, painted to be this um, sort of devious, uh, uh, you know, with their, with their like machinations and trying to infiltrate Sri Lanka, but they're quite incompetent at it, re- really. Um, they, it's just not as refined as the way the European Union um, and, and uh, the US uh, work at sort of manufacturing consent, I guess, among the mm. middle class, mm. among the uh, aspirational classes, you know, those who want to be upwardly mobile, things like that. Um, so yeah, that 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 is my main concern uh, right now. That uh, the balance of power will uh, move towards those interests, those corporate yeah. interests, mm. especially in a climate when the alternative has been so thoroughly uh, discredited. Mm. Mm. Ilan, we're gonna have to leave it there. And I know we're calling you at a very awkward time for you. What time is it there out in Colombo? Uh, it's 11.36 p.m. 11.36 p.m. So let's leave you to get some rest. Uh, a lot happening there. And I certainly hope we can check in again with you just to get some of your observations of the scene as it unfolds. But for now, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. That there's uh, Shiran Ilan Peruma, a researcher and journalist, joining us all the way from uh, Colombo out in Sri Lanka. Wow, I don't know what you make of that. Um, yo, the parallels are so striking. So striking. And you see, many of you yesterday were saying, revolution in a momentum. And I made a, a very, the same point that Elan makes now, which is go to the Arab Spring. Go back to many of the revolutions we've seen in recent memory. And look at how many of them were hijacked by some of the imperialist class forces that Iran is speaking about. Or Shiran is speaking about, I should rather say. That's the reality of it. And that's why I say I, I'm not in favor of this idea that irrevolution maiz laule iambengalo momentum ya No ways. No ways. And I think also the failure to embed in our analysis of corruption a political economy understanding means we're going to be tripped up by the same issues time and again. You see, the issues that tripped up the Gold Coast in the early 60s in the revolution against Nguam and Nkrumah and in subsequent revolutions that we saw across the length and breadth of our continent right through even to the early 90s, if you think about Frederick Chiluba in Zambia um, and what that meant for, you know, the Kaunda government and so on. All of those have roots in the political economy of many of our economies, which are primary commodity producing economies, producing things whose prices we do not set. I'd love to hear your thoughts. Send through those voice notes. Uh, give us a shout and uh, let us know. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think a, a very different perspective from all of the fanfare that we saw diving into the pool, you know, running on a treadmill, abandoning at the PlayStation, and so on. No, 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 no. Let us know your thoughts on that. So 060-552-7303. 060-552-7303.